Welcome to No Challenges in Raining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined this week by Yacho Wang, who is a senior China researcher for Human Rights Watch and is here to talk more with us about the Peng Shui case, which is still dominating the headlines inside tennis and outside tennis uh, weeks later, just over a month now after she made her initial accusations on Weibo. Uh, the story is still continuing. Earlier this week, Steve Simon of the WTA announced that he was suspending all tournaments that the WTA has in China, all 10 tournaments, which is a big step and action that he'd telegraphed before, but now making good on that threat to follow through with that sort of action. But Yasho, you're here to hopefully lend some more Chinese expertise and some and tell us more about how this story, we did an episode a couple weeks ago, somebody Carroll, about how this works from a tennis perspective and where tennis kind of goes from here without China potentially. But hopefully you can give our listeners more context of how the Peng Shui story fits into the wider story of China and, and things going on there. So first of all, thank you for agreeing to come on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so yeah, so I guess let's just start there. Like, what, how did you hear about the Peng Shui story and what were your first thoughts on it? And did it a story like this surprise you, I guess? Well, I first heard about it when it was happening, when she po- made that post online. And that post just exploded and everybody was talking about it because the unique I mean, there are many women who have accused men for sexual harassment, sex, sexual assault. So the Me Too movement is a movement in China. It has been going on for over two years. But the case was so extraordinary in the sense that is that Zhang Gaoli, the accused, is a very high-level Chinese government official. He was the vice premier. He was a member of the Politburo uh, stand, Standing Committee. That it was a seven-member committee that is the highest you know, group of people who govern China. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I think one thing I need to mention is that the Chinese cl- uh, system is very closed. It's ruled by this one communist party that the image of the top leadership is extremely managed. So to see you know, the details of how that relationship which started with a coerced sexual relationship was carried out, it was very striking. And then the other side, which made the story unique was Peng Shui is very famous in China. So, I mean, she's, you know, she was, tennis is not that big in China. Uh, You know, there isn't like a word number one, uh, you know, it's not from China, but people look up to Peng Shui because, you know, she plays the double and she was number one double. And her reputation, gives instant credibility to her, uh, you know, claims. So that was erupted and I was following the case. Then 30 minutes later, the post disappeared. I think, you know, for doing this job for for all these years, I expected this given, you know, the magnitude of the case. Yeah. And then, you know, people start to use coded the language to talk about the case because the name can no longer be mentioned, tennis can no longer mention it. So people started to use, you know, languages to refer to the case without specifically talking about it. But uh, over, you know, for in the following several days, the discussion gradually winged down, but that was not the case outside of China because, you know, WTA had a very forceful 
statements, the IOC participated in the Chinese propaganda. So, you know, I would say the discussion about this is very much now limited to outside of China, not many people discussing inside China anymore, which is very unfortunate because the censorship is so well overwhelming. So what what happens in your experience when there is this really strong censorship that happens in China? Does it is it effective in making a story like Peng Shui's really disappear? Or are people still talking about it maybe, you know, offline in their own in-person interactions or or private messages? Or is it impossible, I guess, to know if, if they if the censorship was effective in, in making this uh, issue quiet down significantly in China? Well, I mean, there are things that we can observe, which is I search the name Peng Shui, nothing comes up. I search Zhang Gaoli, nothing comes up. Oh, but I, you know, talking to people inside China, uh, people who are vaguely aware of what's going on, uh, or you know, people who watch the tennis community. I mean, they knew it happened, but they don't know the extent of the discussion outside of China, and that population is still relatively free, uh, small. I mean, the vast majority had moved on from that. You know, they don't know. You know, this is a case, or they some of them. Many of them, I would say, you know, have never heard about it because it existed online for 30 minutes. Hmm. You mentioned it with Peng Shui's reputation, too, and also just exactly how elite of a politician uh, Zhang Gaoli was during his career. But is there anything else that makes this story unique in the in the specter of uh, the Me Too movement in China or censorship in China? Or is it relatively, I guess, part of a, a normal trend there? Well, I think it's... It's unique and it's not unique. Unique in the sense that, you know, the two sides are very famous people. The not unique part is, you know, this happened to so many women in China. Everybody knows, you know, men in China using power to exploit women. Uh, you know, sexual abuse and assault are very prevalent, yeah. especially, you know, regarding the political system. So that is the not unique part. It fits into the larger part pattern of me to accusations it's just that the two people who were involved were very you know unique in terms of the censorship side how common is it for a story like this for something explosive to get posted on social media and then erased this quickly are there other examples you can think of of, of stories like that well there are many many stories like that uh i mean even in the me too movement you know uh Chinese billionaire, like very big name, you know, uh, celebrities, uh, journalists were accused. And, but the censorship were not that overwhelming because even you're a billionaire, you're not a part of the Chinese Communist Party. You're not as important as them. Uh, so, but, you know, when the discussion got too heated, the Chinese government would come in and remove all the discussions. Because, I mean, we have to, say, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is the Communist Party. Uh, you know, women's emancipation, gender equality is a founding ideology of the party. So in a way, you know, the, the party pays lip service to gender equality. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the party cannot tolerate any kind of independent voice, uh, any kind of independent activism, because the government sees independent, uh, independent mind, independent actions as a threat to the party's control. So you can discuss, you know, sexual harassment, uh, you know, online without much censorship. But when it becomes a hot topic, 
then the government came in because, you know, I don't like chaos. This thing is coming out of my control. I wanted to go to be gone. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I guess, really, so the, really the, the story here about the reaction is about, about Zhang Gaoli being the accused in the yes. story as much as anything. Not just the, not that the general topic of Me Too is necessarily always uh, treated this way in China. I, I think so. But again, when, you know, there are other cases, Me Too cases, they got big and they got censored, but not as oh, so overwhelmingly censored in, in such a way, you know, 30 minutes is all gone, that like nothing can be found on the internet. There were concerns about Peng Shui and her safety uh, that came up, you know, after she'd been quiet or after it hadn't after the post got deleted, after she had not posted again on social media for, uh, you know, 10 days, 11 days, 12 days, people started getting concerned. I guess you were already aware of the story. Were you similarly concerned or what did you think of the silence that followed from her? And then also how uh, the silence was broken uh, by Chinese state run media. Well, I was obviously concerned because doing the this job for all these years, uh, you know, I know what could happen to those people. And I was actually expecting the videos to come out, pictures to come out, the state man, uh, mm-hmm. staged videos, because this happened to so many people in China, whether, you know, they are human rights lawyers, journalists uh, who criticize the government or, you know, celebrities or billionaires who upset the Chinese government in other ways. I mean, in the case of you know human rights lawyers, they got disappeared. They were put in some kind of detention. Then they reappear on a TV, saying, "You know, I defamed the country. I caused uh, disturbance. I confessed to my crimes." And then there are the billionaires. One case, Jack Ma. He's the founder of Alibaba. Alibaba is like China's Amazon. So yeah. he criticized the Chinese regulators for you know controlling the finance financial sector too tight. Then he disappeared for three months. Then he appeared in the video. Nobody knew where he was. And he said, you know, I'm going to focus my attention on philosophies. I want to, you know, help teachers in the rural area uh, to do their work. So nobody knows what happened during that three months. It's only because, you know, three months later, he appeared in the video, right? So this happened to so many people in different walks of their uh, of life. And so I was expecting this video to come out. Do people in China have fear knowing the consequences of speaking out could mean you would be get disappeared. Is that a common understanding there? Absolutely. Absolutely. People know not to criticize the government. It's not just, you know, because what happened today, you know, you get disappeared, you get put in jail, right? It's the history of the Chinese Communist Party, you know, during the Cultural Revolution, millions of people died because, you know, they ran afoul with the government. So the Chinese government has this long history of persecuting people for their speech, and that leaves a mark in people's mind. So, I mean, even today, if you know, if you go to a dinner party of ten people, and people say, you know, don't talk about politics, even it's in a private setting because you're so traumatized from the past. If mm. people internalize the message, they self-censor, even in a very private setting. One of the things I've heard about in China and comes up a bit in this conversation too about those topics that are just considered off limits in China, the big ones, you know, Tiananmen Square, uh, Taiwan, uh, Tibet, uh, maybe there are some others as well. Uh, those are the big ones that we, get, at least in in America, we refer to as sort of the three T's of, of Chinese yeah. censorship. Are those things that people are are f- afraid to talk with their own friends about in in private in China? Is that is it that is the fear that strong that even 
post uh, talking like like you said like a dinner party is is considered risky. I think so. I mean, there are hmm. two aspects of it. One is, you know, you're worried that, you know, the government doesn't like it, so you can be punished by the government. But on the other hand, the people feel, you know, they don't want to be socially ostracized by speaking, uh, you know, contrary to the prevailing views. I mean, the latter exists in the US too, but the formal, you know, does not exist. Nobody is worried the government is going to jail you for speaking against the government. Yeah. You mentioned the, the videos that came out from Peng Shui. Uh, what did you think when you saw those videos of her at the restaurant and then at the tennis tournament and the photos of her with the stuffed animals behind her looking happy? I mean, is that is there any reason, and even you can we can include like the, the video call that she did with the IOC. The WTA was clearly not satisfied by that, said, you know, we still have concerns about her safety and her autonomy and her ability to speak without coercion or control. Um, which I think makes sense. I'm curious what you think uh, as well. Is there is the WTA correct to still not have their concerns at all uh, comforted or calmed by those uh, by those displays? I'm totally on the side of the WTA because you know, as I said, many people have gone through this route of being disappeared and reappear saying, "I'm doing no good. Don't worry about me." And some of those people, they you know, were later released from detention or, you know, fled China. And then they came forward and say, you know, I was forced to do this. You know, the government gave me a script. I have to memorize the lines. You know, when I was doing that, there are, you know, over a dozen security people watching me doing this. So, you know, when I saw those videos of Peng Shui and pictures of her smiling, I just feel painful because I know you know, she's under, must be under some kind of control and surveillance and you have to act, you have to perform, being happy. It's very painful. What did you think about the IOC getting involved the way they did uh, doing the video call with Peng Shui as the only non-international, you know, group to have contacted her, but to sort of participate in the, in the Chinese state media messaging around her story what did what did you think of the IOC's involvement and their cooperation with the Chinese government and if that was unusual to see uh, a foreign organization be so tight with the Chinese Communist Party line on this story I think it's really shameful and outrageous to participate in this Chinese government propaganda I mean this forced disappearance forced the confession forced the video are well known it's well documented and it's long running right now, IOC knows that, and knowing that is still go and do that is just very shameful. And I, I just feel, you know, those people are very priv- privileged people. You don't have to be part of that. You still choose to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, you know, to maintain your organization, and, you know, to keep the money flowing is just shameful. About the Olympics, there's obviously the Olympics coming. Part of the reason people think that the, that the IOC is being so cooperative and so uh, compliant with the Chinese government is because the Beijing Winter Olympics are coming up very soon in February 2022, a big event for them. And I'm curious what the importance of the Olympics is to China on the world stage for their image. I know obviously the 2008 Beijing Olympics were their first time hosting Olympics. The opening ceremony especially was very famous around the world for how impressive it was and the scale of the, the choreography and the production and everything there. How how does China use the Olympics and I guess maybe more widely other sports as well, sporting events, uh, to help its image and to, and to 
clean its its international image? I mean, I think you know, using the Olympics and other international sports uh, venues events is very big part of the Chinese government's uh, you know promoting its image strategy. Uh, I was a college student in on, uh, in two thousand eight, and you know, being part of that, I was in China. Being part of that, you feel a sense of proud. You feel, wow, the, our country has made such an achievement. Look what we can present to the world. So that's a very, you know, it's not just a communist party, it's shared by people. You know, you feel that as a nation, we have achieved, you know, something that people are coming to my country and see how good we have done, right? So, I mean, this is a very important part of the Chinese government strategy in, you know, uh, promoting its image in legitimizing its policies. And that policies include, you know, its policies on human rights, uh, uh, only things related to human rights. I mean, I mean, we all know, you know, we would say it's crimes against humanity in Xinjiang, it's, you know, severe crackdowns on civil liberties in Hong Kong, but from the Chinese government's perspective, you know, we're contributing to the development. Our policy is to try to help the Uyghurs, the poor Uyghurs uh, to develop their, uh, you know, uh, area to, you know, civilize them. So what we're doing in Hong Kong is concerns national sovereignty. So I think, uh, you know, the, I would say having you know, this game is to say, you know, we are doing a great job. Come to our country. What do you think about the calls, the, the conversations about potential boycotts of some level of the Olympics that have emerged uh, more loudly, I think, because after the Peng Shui story than before? These were always there from people, I'm not sure if, if you or other or others in, in organizations like yours were calling for them before, like you mentioned, all the other issues. And if you want to explain a little bit about what those issues are more for people um, that already made the 2022 Olympics a concern. But what do you think about the increased call for it since the Peng Shui story began? And do you think there's any chance of it happening? And, and if so, what would be the effect of, of some sort of Olympic boycott, whether it's a, a full boycott by a whole team, uh, a whole country of athletes, or just a, a diplomatic boycott, they call it, where just, you know, the you know, officials from the government would not attend the games. There had, had been a boycott, boycott call prior to the Peng Shui case because of the abysmal human rights abuses happening in China, it's in Xinjiang, you know, Hong Kong and the rest of China. Censorship, everything, just very bad. So, you know, there's the idea, like, don't go there to legitimize the Chinese government's human rights abuses. I think what made the Peng Shui case stand out is that now I think, you know, Peng Shui is an Olympian, she's famous, but she made this one post accusing a government official of sexual assault and now she got disappeared. That is sends a message that no Olympians are safe. I mean, if you go to China, if you say something the Chinese government doesn't like, uh, you can be in big trouble, no matter how famous you are, right? I mean. It also concerns people who, you know, maybe in the past I have criticized the Chinese government. Can I still go to China? Will I be in trouble if, because, you know, government didn't like what I said 10 years ago? I mean, those are the real concerns to, you know, the athletes. I think this case, the Peng Shui case made, uh, you know, athletes realize, you know, I'm not, I, I prop, I, I'm not safe if I, if I go there. So, uh, in terms of, you know, what kind of boycotts, Human Rights Watch has advocated for diplomatic boycotts because we understand athletes have, you know, trained for their life to be prepared for this big event. 
Uh, also, they didn't choose to go to Beijing. They had no power, no say in where the game can be hosted, right? So that is understandable. Uh, on the other hand, you know, for politicians, uh, you know, celebrities, international dignitaries, and also sponsors, you know, business sponsors, they should stay away from the game. As I said, because the government is using the game to showcase the country to sport, sports washing its policies, uh, you know, including human rights abuses. And by, you know, staying away the game, they're sending the message that, you know, we don't approve what you're doing, uh, you know, to people in Xinjiang, uh, in Hong Kong, to Pengshui. So we don't want it to be part of that. Do you think that could be effective? Do you think something like, what would be the impact of something like a diplomatic boycott on these issues in China? Oh, I think, you know, probably the impact will be limited, but still, you know, it's a message. You know, working on this job, you know, doing human rights in China for these years, the impact is always limited. And it's a gradual process. It requires all people come together. You know, just one boycott is not going to amount to a lot, but all people come together and take a stand, you know, on small things. I mean, there will be an accumulative effect. The Chinese Communist Party hinges its legitimacy very much on economic development. Uh, you know, I mean, by not engage in those, you know, international events, engage in the international business, it will, you know, have a hit on the government. We've mentioned it before, but the WTA, the way they reacted to this uh, very strongly, and once they finally made their statement, it took them about 11 days after Peng Shui's first post to put out their own statement. But once they did, it was very strong. And it called out by name China and the censorship that she was facing there. And these other things that we haven't seen, even other companies who are ha- in even some individual athletes in tennis who have spoken out in support of Peng Shui, they have not used the directness of language that the WTA has. And a lot, the WTA is getting a lot of praise from a lot of different uh, parts of uh, the culture in the U.S. at least, or Western culture, uh, for their bravery in this. What, what do you think about the WTA and how, how unique their stance has been? Is there a precedent for um, you know, a Western company, uh, which does a lot of business in China, standing up to China and calling them out in this sort of way? Or is, there, or is this really a, a unique development? I think it's a unique development. I have so much respect for the WTA. They have a lot of money on the line, and they decided to you know, prioritize human rights over profits. I think over the years, we got so accustomed to international sports organizations, big business cowering to the Chinese government, uh, you know, keep silent on human rights issues in China. And for this one organization saying that, you know, human rights is bigger than business. It's very inspiring. I mean, then, you know, I don't, I said, I said, I don't know much about tennis. So I start yeah. to read the history of the WTA and I start to realize, you know, there's reasons why they are unique. You know, they were pioneers on, you know, pay equality between male and female tennis. So I can start to, you know, understand the history of that. One question I have, maybe this might not be something you would feel like comfortable knowing, a- answering just because of your, like you said, l- relative lack of familiarity with tennis, but there are still a bunch of Chinese pro tennis players on the women's side mm-hmm. who would be in a normal year, you know, traveling and competing on the tour, representing China. None of the top, top players right now, in, especially in singles, but a few players in, in the top hundred, at least. Do you think 
with the suspension that the WTA has enacted, do you think those players would be allowed to keep competing in on the international tour? Or do you think that the Chinese government would restrict them from uh, being part of the WTA? Or what, what do you think is the future of the WTA in uh, in China after this after the stand they've made? Or your future of even Chinese athletes being able and allowed to play WTA tournaments around the world? Well, I think that's a big possibility. One thing that is for sure is the Chinese government can decide, you know, whether you can play in those international tournaments or not, because they just have so much control over the athletes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's very possible that they decide, you know, if the WTA is going to antagonize me, I'm not going to let my athletes to go, go compete in your games. So I think it's quite a possibility. Yeah, definitely. What would, and sort of, I guess, a little bit in conclusion, what would you like to see happen next in this story? Whether it's realistic or not, what would be a sort of positive development for you on the on the Peng Shui case? What are you hoping happens next? I think first and foremost, you know, if Peng Shui remains in China, she will never be free in the sense of how we understand being free is. Uh, so I wish, you know, she can, the government will allow her to leave China if she wishes. But in any case, I feel keep the tension on her case, keep the pressure on, helps people who are under control, under surveillance by the Chinese government. That's just after years of doing this job, even, you know, it's hard to get people out of jail, like human rights activists, the international attention helps them to keep them in a relative, you know, safe I would, you know, in a situation better than they would have been had they not been international attention. Um, you know, another thing that I really want to say is see is other organizations come together to, you know, stand with the WTA and take a stand saying, you know, I don't agree with the human rights abuses in China. I don't want it to be part of it. I don't want to engage with you anymore if you don't approve the human rights situations. Uh, you know, there are a lot of money in the line in China. Uh, that's why the IOC is saying what they're doing, what they're doing, that, you know, the NBA had never really been outspoken on that. But I think, you know, one thing is that the human rights situation in China has gone worse and worse. Uh, you know, it's just to keep mom about the situation and to, you know, turn your head away is become more and more unsustainable. And you know where is the conscious, right? On the other hand, there are more and more scrutiny over the uh, you know the the international business engagement with China. Uh, you know the scrutiny comes from the media, and you can see there's so much praise for the WTA for you know what there's the stand they're taking. So there will be more scrutiny from the media and also from politicians. And I hope you know with all those factors in play. You know, international business and you know, international sports organizations will come together and do the right thing. It's interesting what you're saying that keeping the sort of vocal pressure on China does help because that's one thing the IOC has said in a statement they're trying to do quiet diplomacy or something like that. Um, or you know, and that other organizations have suggested that too, but that's mostly been an IOC talking point. But I guess you don't think that's effective. It's important for the conversations around Peng Shui to remain loud and make it clear that people haven't forgotten about her internationally, I guess, is what you're saying. Absolutely. I think the attention uh, helps and it makes you know, the Chinese government have a second thought to when they decide what to do with her. Uh, I mean, the Chinese government always, you know, I most of the people I deal with are human rights activists. Uh, 
you know, the government always tell their family, keep quiet, don't talk about it. Because if you dare to talk about to the international media about your husband's case, we're going to punish your husband's even severe. And usually family understand, you know, take in the message and they keep quiet, but it usually doesn't work that way. Uh, you know, the attention from outside, the pressure from outside makes the government feel, you know, I cannot do whatever I want to do because, you know, somebody is going to criticize me or, you know, there are some noises. So rather than, you know, I wanted to make sure we want the noise to go away. So maybe I'm not going to abuse the person as much as I would have wanted. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thank you very much, Yacho, for coming on here. Any other closing thoughts before we wrap up that you want to add? I think that's it. Okay, great. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Of course. So thank you very much to Yacho Wong of Human Rights Watch for joining on this week's show. Hopefully that was illuminating for y'all. And thank you all for listening. And thank you for your support on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. Two new backers to thank since our last episode, Liz Farbman and Justin. Thank you to both Liz and Justin for their support. And it's our first episode of the month of December, which means we get to thank a whole bunch of people including our on-tour backers, Peter Frey, Matt Mitchell, Rachmere E., Kristen Webb, Greg Rails, Olivia Haynes, Jeff Augustin, Deepa Mokshagundam, Ido Pollock, Nick, Mallory Mappas-Couture, Laura Vergani, Aluko Hope, David Ebershoff, Ken Solomon, Kathleen Sharkey, Stephen Tidings, Danielle Hartzell, Horatio Silva, Joseph Haar, Reginald Bazile, Misa Miyagawa, Annie Kim, J.B. Wogan, Jillian Dobson, Andrew, The Body Serve Podcast, Andrew Eccles, Ninja Steph, Joy Katz, Greer Millard, Bridget Robinson, Ava Marshall-Kova, John Fisher, Romdwolve Wong, Harish, Elise Panyich, Kate S., Jeremy Blackstock, Dermot Harkin, and Lori Porter. And then our Slam Champ backers, we thank every episode, Susanna W., Sean Milroy, Mary Carrillo, Leah Williams, Liz Kennel, Jonathan Weinbaum, Jean Simeon, James Hindle, Antonio Maycumber, Anna Valinder, Timothy Liu, and Ashley Keel, and our GOAT backers, Nicole Copeland, Pam Shriver, and J.O.D. Until next time, bye folks! <laughs> <laughs>